When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Whatever you think about critical race theory, you're probably not thinking it involves an alien invasion. But what if it does? Bernie, some of these people have been out here since 2 o'clock this morning, so the aliens aren't scheduled to arrive before noon. This is from a TV movie, came out in the 90s. It's based on a short story by Derek Bell, the father of critical race theory. This story is called The Space Traders. In it, aliens arrive on Earth. They've taught themselves to talk like Ronald Reagan. And they've got gifts, limitless sources of gold and energy. But there's a catch. In exchange for all this, the United States has to agree to give the aliens each and every black person. Are you kidding? No, we are not. What are you going to do with them? Well, that does not concern you. We give you five. It sounds like American history remixed with Afrofuturism. Absolutely. It really, that's, that's, you know, that's a very good explanation of it. Adam Harris from over at The Atlantic, he first heard about critical race theory when he was in college. A professor recommended one of Derek Bell's books to him. So you were indoctrinated. Yeah, (laughs) effectively. Derek Bell didn't just write these sci-fi fairy tales, but he did try to communicate his big idea that American law is imbued with racial bigotry in lots of different ways to reach the broadest possible audience. That book Adam read, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, includes darker stories like The Space Traders, But Adam preferred a more hopeful fable, Afrolantica Awakening. It's about an island that rises up in the middle of the ocean, a place where only black people can breathe the air. And suddenly, black folks everywhere have to decide, do we pack up and move there? And so they go to um, this place, Afrolantica, um, and effectively what they realize back in, in America is how fundamental black people were to to the nation, but also kind of 
Afro-Atlantica kind of fades away, um, and and they return to the U.S. with this kind of knowledge that this is this is home, right? There is no place that we can go and sort of run away from the problems that we're facing here. That the through line is to make America a, a sort of more perfect union, a better place, a more hospitable place. When Adam flips on the TV or the radio now and listens to the way critical race theory is being dissected by news anchors and pundits. No one's talking about these allegories and what they mean. And the theory behind these stories has gotten squashed and twisted. Some of you may be wondering, what's the deal with the GOP freakout over critical race theory? CRT, uh, like a lot of the transgender uh, ideology, is designed to divide. It's not critical race theory. It's racism. The people pushing this stuff have been trying to divide America. It's an interesting situation to be in where where you know that when you hear the term, it is not actually referring um, to the foundations and the root of, of what critical race theory actually is. Today on the show, how critical race theory became so controversial so quickly. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand what's happening right now with critical race theory, it helps to go back to when Derek Bell first germinated the idea. It was the 1970s. He was teaching at Harvard. Bell's research explored how racism wasn't just about individual choices, but structural, baked into systems, legal and otherwise, that people come up against in their lives. Bell's ideas gained purchase among other Ivy League scholars, including Kimberly Crenshaw. In 1989, Crenshaw helped organize a conference called New Developments in Critical Race Theory. She effectively gave this new field a name. That was sort of one of the foundational conferences of, of critical race theory and, and kind of the, the framework more broadly. Um, so it was in that in that sort of vacuum, they picked up this mantle and, and um, kind of pushed, pushed the idea forward, pushed the framework forward. And was critical race theory eventually accepted more widely? And folks thought, yeah, this this is correct. You know, as a framework, as a way of understanding race in American law, it has been, for academics, a, a very useful tool. Um, but the problem is that, you know, as with other kind of academic frameworks and academic theories, it gets distorted when, when, it, leaves, when it leaves academe, when it kind of leaves the ivory tower. Yeah, it's funny because I think about the 2020 election cycle and how there was a lot of time spent talking about big structural change and how much structural change we needed. And it seems to me like the Venn diagram of big structural change and critical race theory ideas, it's almost just a circle. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a different way of phrasing something quite similar. Is that fair? 
Um, I'm, I'm thinking back to an interview that I did with Senator Elizabeth Warren, kind of pretty early in her candidacy. I want to say this was this was maybe March or April 2019. You know, we we were talking about how public policy created um, the racial wealth gap, how public policy kind of created these gaps in, in housing and housing segregation, how it kind of created gaps in um, in education, um, and how only public policy can fix it. And and really, that is. Um, at its root, kind of the the foundational issue, right? It's it's a big structural change. It's it's the the idea that um, these are structural issues. These are issues created by you know federal, state, private actors um, that need to be addressed at their root. Because over time, um, as as sort of wealth expands, um, that gap just grows wider. And so you really need to strike at the root of the problem. I was surprised by how long these three words, critical race theory, had been used as a conservative boogeyman. Like, never as much as now, but it's it's come up before. Like, if you look back at Lonnie Guineer, who was nominated by President Clinton. Amid mounting pressure from conservatives, President Clinton has withdrawn his nomination of Lonnie Guineer to head up the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Claiming Guineer's writings lent themselves to views that he could not embrace, the president cut her loose rather than fight a divisive battle on Capitol Hill. You know, her nomination was scuttled partially because of discussion about critical race theory. Can you talk about, like, when this was seized on, just these three words in particular, to criticize people, especially Democrats? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the 90s, as you mentioned, Lonnie Guineer, that was one of the first times that you really saw the theory kind of show up in a major way, right? You know, President Clinton backed away from her nomination. Um, They're effectively saying that that she was too radical um, and kind of too divisive of a concept. She was tagged a quota queen for her previous work on on voting rights. But then, you know, it was it was interesting because it kind of went dormant in the kind of broader conversation. Um, you saw a mention of it when Professor Bell passed away um, and, you know, a video resurfaced of President Obama, you know, introducing Professor Bell when he was still a student in, in uh, the 1990s. He hasn't done it simply because of the excellence of his scholarship, although his scholarship has opened up new vistas and new horizons and changed the standards of what legal writing is about. Open up your hearts and your minds to the words of Professor Derek Bell. And conservatives said that this was evidence that the president was consorting with radicals. The associations always come into play. And this guy, Bell, I mean, he's a pretty radical guy. Pretty radical guy. Well, he's no Jeremiah Wright, uh, I must say. He's a radical guy. He had some difference. That was the first mention of it on the Fox News Network. The second mention is after George Zimmerman is acquitted. It's kind of a throwaway mention after he's uh, um, acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And then you don't really hear about it much more. There are about four or five mentions in between um, Zimmerman's acquittal and June 2020, right after George Floyd is murdered by Derek Chauvin and you know, people take to the streets. The nation's kind of awash in anti-racist reading lists. Um, And you start to see a pushback to this kind of fundamental reassessment of the gaps and, and the inequities in American society. Over the last year, 
there has been one person in particular leading the charge against critical race theory. His name is Chris Rufo, lives in Seattle, works for a conservative think tank. And as protests were sweeping the country last summer, he got this email from a city of Seattle employee. It said a required diversity training was teaching employees to hate their country. And it included PowerPoint slides as proof. Chris saw this as an opportunity. He started writing about it. He doesn't use the term critical race theory in that first in that first um, post. But in subsequent posts, you know, he starts to get messages from from other school districts. He starts to get messages from, um, you know, various and kind of anecdotes from the federal government. And, and he writes each of these up um, and it, it sort of develops into a small portfolio of stories. And then he's invited by September on uh, Tucker Carlson's program on Fox News. Now, Chris Rufo, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, Tucker, this is something I've been investigating for the last six months, and it's absolutely astonishing how critical race theory has pervaded every institution in the federal government. And what I've discovered is that critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy and is now being weaponized against the American people. I'd like to share three investigations that I've unleashed. Uh, he starts off by saying that, you know, critical race theory is infecting every kind of the upper echelons of American bureaucracy, and it's become the dominant theory of, of kind of these diversity trainings. Um, and it should be banned because it is teaching white people to hate themselves. It's teaching Americans to hate America. Fundamentally, things that are contra to what critical race theory actually does. And he calls on President Trump uh, to ban uh, critical race theory in um, kind of federal workforce trainings and, and you know, for, for any institution that, that receives federal funding. Um, he receives a call the next day or receives a message the next day from the president's chief of staff. The president had apparently been watching the program. Um, and three weeks later, the president signs an executive order banning the the funhouse mirror version of critical race theory that um, Rufo had outlined on Fox News. Yeah, Rufo's story is so interesting to me because he seems to know exactly what he's doing. Like once he sort of, once he realizes there's a name, there's this CRT name that he can hang a whole bunch of feelings on, he just kind of goes for it <laughs> in this way that um he's like he's not he's not subtle about it. He just says like, yeah, I want everyone to be associating any negative feelings they have about race and being forced to talk about race with this one word. And I want everyone to just instantly have that reaction. It's interesting because I asked him to define what critical race theory was um, at the time. He, he wouldn't um, hop on the phone with me, but but we we did a back and forth um, via email, and and so he he defined the theory in in a way that that you know many critical race theories, theorists actually would not disagree with, but but outside of kind of the definition of the theory, um, he has sort of given away um, kind of exactly. Exactly what you just said, right? He's he said that um, effectively he wants to wrap all of the things that um, you know conservatives disagree with under this veil of of critical race theory, um, so that it's it's kind of fundamentally changed the public's understanding of of what the term 
actually means. Yeah. It's interesting because I was looking at the slides that Rufo initially saw from the city of Seattle, um, this diversity training. And it was interesting to read the text because I could understand why someone would look at this and say, this is very ham-handed. Like a slide saying, you know, welcome to internalized racial superiority for white people. You know, what do we do in white people space? Like it just, it seems like one of, it seems awkward. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just, it made me so angry that that awkwardness that I think many people might feel looking at that could then be weaponized to be racist, like very, very racist, <laughs> and suppress conversations about the history of the country. Yeah. And and I think that actually is at the heart of this, that when it when it comes to sort of legislating speech, right, over the last several years, kind of Republicans, conservatives have been up in arms about free speech, whether that is on campus, whether that is the stifling of conservative speech elsewhere and, and public venues. But this is legitimately several state legislators effectively putting a chill on on speech. In Pennsylvania, they introduced a bill that would not only ban sort of the teaching of divisive concepts or, or the endorsement of the divisive concepts, but also assigning books that taught those sort of divisive concepts that really strike it are, are really a backlash to the reckoning that America's had with its with its own history over the last several years right the 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 questioning of this idea that the mayflower came over and then you had the declaration of independence and then you had the constitution and then some other stuff happened, but America's <laughs> moved past that right we we had the civil war people fought um and and America's debts were paid in the blood of Union and Confederate soldiers. And then we signed the Civil Rights Act, and and everyone loves Martin Luther King now, and he has a day named after him. And and so and President Obama became the president. So so America has moved past its racial problems. Um, when really the the broader argument in, in this reassessment says that well you know, we have to reckon with the legacy of slavery. We have to reckon with this, the legacy of Jim Crow. We have to understand the ways that housing segregation is still with us and that school segregation is still with us and that there are disparities in healthcare and that there are disparities just kind of across the board and how that is influenced by America's legacy. Um, and that we can't have these tidy pictures because if we if we paint these these tidy um, images of what America is, then we will never sort of be able to to have a fuller understanding of, of what America could be. When we come back, how the fight over the legacy of policy is playing out in new policy now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's important to say flat out that what conservatives are mad about right now isn't necessarily critical race theory itself. That's just the brand name they've assigned to a bigger fight over how Americans talk about race. That hasn't stopped Republicans in state houses around the country from rushing to legislate away any mention of critical race theory in school curriculums or government trainings. And sometimes the language is even broader than that, simply looking to quash divisive concepts in the classroom. So far, legislation about critical race theory or related ideas has been introduced in 22 states and signed into law in six of them. The language, mechanisms, and consequences are different between each bill. But Adam Harris says the overall effect is mostly the same. What free speech advocates were worried about at the beginning was that it would effectively just have a chill on speech, have a chill on on what teachers and professors felt comfortable being able to say. Yeah, you've written that the vagueness is kind of part of the point. Exactly. Where if you're so vague, anything can go in there. Yes, that is effectively the point. That it's the way that the bills are written, right, to say that um, you can't endorse any of these divisive concepts. And and some of these divisive concepts are written in a way that it's like, well, if I teach, um, if I teach my students about you know, exclusionary zoning laws. Is uh, is that how you understand a, a divisive concept? Yeah, one person's divisive concept is another person's truth, history. And, exactly. And, and effectively, teachers will say, well, I am just teaching history. I am just teaching, I'm teaching facts. And America is in a place where kind of facts and beliefs are, are you know, have been kind of conflated when there are, you know, things that are true. It is true that redlining continues to impact um, housing segregation in cities today. You know, that, that's that's not a, a, a belief. That is a fact. The most chilling rule to me was one in Florida requiring folks at public universities to be surveyed to ensure that there was intellectual diversity, like diversity of thought, mm-hmm. I guess, just it seemed so close, like just just over a line to being thought police and and really alarming. And it, there's no indication of how the surveys will be used. It's just sort of a vague cloud of threat. Mm-hmm. Was there one that stood out to you? You know, I, I, I think that the Florida one stands out to me. I, I also I, I keep coming back to the Pennsylvania legislation, that certain books can't be taught, um, that, that certain speakers, of course, can't come to campuses. Um, and and it's, been, it's been interesting because over the last several years, 
you know, that has been a prominent conservative criticism, right? That they are shutting down conservative speakers, um, that uh, that this was— Right, a, that liberals are a bunch of snowflakes. Li- exactly. And so now you have literal law, conservative lawmakers introducing bills that would ban speakers from coming to campus, that would ban teachers from assigning certain texts. And that's a, it's a textbook free speech violation. Yeah. So you've studied equity in education for a long time. Mm-hmm. And this whole debate just kind of makes me wonder if you've got thoughts about why education in particular is such a lightning rod for these issues of race and equity and inclusion. Like, why why are we always fighting in the schools? You know, the, the the kind of conversations about curriculum, what people are being taught, um, it it just has a it has such a a long long history. You know, you you one of the most recent um, kind of comparisons, of course, was the battle over over Common Core, in part because America is so um, kind of dead set on. Uh, this idea of local control over schools, and then times that that sort of extends into the curriculum, right? Um, of course, the, the idea of local control over schools is in part what what keeps America's schools remarkably inequitable in terms of the funding that that they receive through local you know tax dollars and 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 other ways. But even going further back than that, right? You you saw during the civil rights movement, um, kind of before Brown v. Board of Education, you know. You have a, a literal. The University of Mississippi was almost literally on fire in in 1962. You have protests. You had bombings because they were trying to integrate schools. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did a project last year where I interviewed several of the first people to integrate their public schools in different towns across the country, and and one of them in particular sticks out to me, and it's the story of Joanne Allen Boyce, who. When when she was integrating her public school in Tennessee in the 1950s, you know, six months after they integrated the school, the school was bombed, right? Um, the, hmm. There were these fierce protests. Um, people were arguing that um, this was just another step towards, you know, miscegenation um, and, and interracial marriage. And, you know... Schools have have historically kind of just been this this flashpoint. So it, it seems it comes as kind of no surprise now that when you are in the wake of another kind of reassessment of American history um, and and the deep inequalities in American society, that that schools have once again become one of the the flashpoints of all of that. I wonder a little bit if you look back at that history, and you think, well. At least that's not what we're doing right now. Or whether you see that history and you think, God, this is how bad it can get. And like this may be the beginning of something rather than the end. You know, when you look at scenes like you saw in, in Loudoun County where you have, you know, parents literally being arrested, protesting this this sort of boogeyman of critical race theory in schools, you are kind of seeing a more aggressive pushback to to this this iteration of reassessment, there are a couple of ways that this could go. I mean, it, it's it's clear at this point that the sort of boogeyman of of critical race theory 
is is not going away in t- anytime soon. Um, in the sort of con- conservative publishing ecosystem, there are books that are coming out soon that will kind of point to, to critical race theory as something broadly infecting American society. Infecting? Infecting, yes. What language? Yeah, in the same way that, um, because they are viewing all of these kind of cultural forms, all of these assessments that are kind of rethinking this threadbare mythology of, of American history as something toxic to America. You know, over the next several months, we will see how this kind of current iteration of, of the kind of culture war conversation develops. But um, you also have to think about the fact that Americans are, are kind of more siloed into the, the people that they associate with on Facebook, into um, what news they they choose to consume, right? It's like, are, are people who, who watch Fox News and, and OANN going to believe um, people who, who say that this critical race theory, what, what they're talking about isn't actually critical race theory, and also critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. Um, and and also, this is just a broad assessment of American history. Are they actually going to believe that when you are hearing that this is a, a scourge on the nation that is infecting every every wing of, of the national and federal government? Hmm. When I think about how we teach race in America, I often in my mind compare it to Germany, where after World War II, there was a curriculum implemented where students were taught from a young age about how Hitler rose and why the Nazis came to power and were explicitly taught that it was wrong. And we don't do anything like that, anything close to that, when it comes to slavery in the United States. And so I often make that comparison in my head. And then I think about how Germany right now is struggling with its own right wing Mm. that seems to have come about in spite of this very careful thinking about how we talk about our history and who we are. And it just makes me wonder, like, I don't know if we know how to have this conversation. And I don't know if anyone's figured it out yet. Yeah. And and I didn't. I didn't know if you made that comparison too. No, I, I and I've I've been thinking about that, and in part, I one of my colleagues actually just released a book, um, Clint Smith, How the Word Is Passed, um, where he goes to Angola prison, right, the largest maximum security prison in the nation that sits on the a former plantation, you know. And when you think about kind of the comparisons between um, um, prison and and slavery, you know, it's it's, it's not a one direct one to one, you know. The, the, the children of prisoners are not kind of bound into um, prison. Um, you know, it's it's not kind of the, the horror of chattel slavery. But he, w- he was talking about that and how it relates to Germany as well. Um, if you had a prison on the site of a former concentration camp, people, of course, in Germany may, would be up in arms about that. But more broadly, to your point, I don't think that America has figured out how to talk about race. I don't think that the kind of world more broadly is able to talk about sort of imperialism and the and the history of colonialism um, in a way that is uh, kind of consistent with what actually happened. You know, I, I still don't think that we are having those kind of robust conversations because they're difficult, because they make people uncomfortable. And when people get uncomfortable, they they want to push back and they want to kind of rebel against that that feeling of of unease. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. And thanks so much for having me. Adam Harris is a staff writer for The Atlantic. 
He's got a new book coming out in August. It's called The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Carmel Delshad. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I hope you had a great July 4th holiday if you took it. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.